the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Coming up this hour, did you see that exchange between Senator Rand Paul and Dr. Fauci about masks? And then we're joined by Jeff Mingi, lead pastor of Catalyst Church in Newport News, Virginia. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, everybody. Happy Friday. Welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you with us on the last day of the week. The weather's turning warmer. And folks, I am going to be bouncing off the walls today during the show because following the show, my wife and I and kids are heading on vacation for a couple of days. Super excited. We're going to a warm place. Uh, be back on Tuesday night. So it's not a long trip, but we weren't able to pull anything off for spring break this year for various different reasons. And so this, uh, this, I told my wife, we got to get out of town. We got to do this. And the day has finally come. We've been looking forward to it for like two months and we are excited. So, uh, we're excited to do that. We're looking forward to being away as a family, but hopefully you're looking forward to just the weekend, uh, as it is upon us. We've got a good show ahead of us today. As we lead into the weekend, I wanted to start uh, with uh, with two stories, kind of newsy a little bit. Uh, and the first one is this. Uh, the FBI continues to release videos of, quote, most egregious assaults on officers of the Capitol at the Capitol riot. The FBI urged the public to help them identify the suspects in newly released videos from the January 6th mob where an officer died of injuries sustained that day. So the FBI continues to release videos asking for the public. Uh, it says in the two months since the attack on the Capitol, federal agents have arrested more than 300 uh, individuals who took part in the mob. They're still struggling to identify some of the most violent suspects who were seen on the video assaulting law enforcement agents. And I don't want to rediscuss the actual Capitol riot, except to say that as you see these videos that are being released by the FBI, it is just, uh, I almost said startling, but that's not strong enough of a word. It is uh, disturbing how violent it got. And, and it really makes you uh, realize how close we came on that day to it being a lot worse. And don't get me wrong, it was bad. That was crazy. And I do think regardless of your politics, regardless of where you're at on that spectrum, we have to kind of uh, look in the mirror as a nation back to January 6th and go, how'd that happen? What were the reasons that that happened? And and we've got to correct them. Like that was a big deal. You almost forget what happened because so many different things have happened since January the 6th. But um, just let that sink in again. Every now and then I have to remind myself, like our capital was under siege from within. It was under attack by some people. There was actual danger and actual um, things going on. And, and the most tragic of them was the assault on Capitol Officer Brian Sicknick, who died from his injuries. Authorities believe Sicknick may have been inhaled an irritant such as bear spray during the riot. 
but have not given an actual cause of death. But that, I think just the other day, right, they released pictures of the two men uh, and arrested the two men or at least tried to arrest uh, the two men uh, who did that. One officer was also stabbed with a metal fence stake and others suffered two cracked ribs and two smashed spinal discs. Many were hit in the head with metal pipes. And so I bring that up to go that I was watching that on the Today Show this morning or yesterday, this report about the FBI still releasing videos. And, and you watch them and they're almost too difficult to watch. And you go, who are we that this happened? It feels a little bit like Lord of the Flies as you watch it, kind of where you look back and go, man, how did that happen? And so uh, hopefully that is the low point for us in this uh, this season as a country and that we can heal and and kind of make the changes necessary kind of along the same lines uh let me get us to it at cnn i'm reading this Uh, i wonder if you saw the back and forth between senator Rand paul yesterday uh and dr fauci uh masks it was all about masks uh so dr fauci he was um he was testifying before a senate committee that Rand paul was a part of Uh, In a hearing and they had this exchange where Senator Rand Paul went all in about masks. Uh, Senator Rand Paul, as anyone knows who that is, uh, is is uh, certainly against kind of a mask mandate and some other things. And so uh, Rand Paul said, you're telling everybody to wear a mask, whether they've had the infection or a vaccine. He said to Fauci, if people that have had the vaccine or have had the infection, if we're not spreading the infection, isn't it just theater? He said. Fauci went on to say, here we go again with the theater. Let's get down to the facts. Let me just state for the record that masks are not theater. Masks are protective. And and, and they went back and forth about whether or not masks needed to be worn, especially by people who have had the COVID-19 uh, pandemic, or they've had the coronavirus, the COVID-19 virus, or if they've been fully vaccinated. And, and Rand Paul's point was, what's the reason then to wear masks? And Fauci's point was, it's still important. Rand Paul called it theater and that it's discouraging. Uh, Fauci pushed back against that. I, I want to move off of the actual discussion because I know people out there who are listening, you are, some of you are vehemently pro mask. You'll wear a mask every time you're out of the house. Uh, you, you will, you're all, you're wearing two masks, whatever else it might be. Others of you out there, uh, think it's ridiculous to wear a mask, think it's long past time that we do not wear masks anymore. Uh, and especially you agree with Rand Paul here that especially if you've had the virus or if you have been vaccinated, there is absolutely no reason to wear a mask. I get it. There's a continuum. There's a spectrum of people, uh, across the board. And that's the important conversation from there. But here's the conversation I want to have here as we get the show going here. Uh, And that's this is the different ways that this was actually uh, reported yesterday. Uh, As I was watching this yesterday, what I saw was um, I went to Fox and looked at Fox News and I read the story and they had multiple stories on there of this exchange of how uh, Rand Paul just owned Dr. Fauci uh, and and just kind of saying, hey, did you see Rand Paul just embarrass Dr. Fauci? Uh, And then I went to MSNBC and NBCNews.com and I think uh, also Zencaster. Sorry, I also went to uh, CNN. And you know what they said over and over again? They said, did you see the way that Dr. Fauci owned uh, Rand Paul? Did you see him put him in his place? Once again, the expert took down the Congress. It was polar opposites of the way that they said 
uh, how it played out. And it was another thing for me, and this is the most important part, and you can also tie it back to the capital rights that we were just talking about. The way we consume our news is not neutral. And I think that's really important for us to remember. The way we consume our news is not neutral. If you were only a Fox News person yesterday, you're going to think that Rand Paul proved yesterday uh, that masks are done. They shouldn't be worn anymore. They're just theater. It's time to move on. And that he embarrassed Dr. Fauci. If you are an MSNBC, CNN person yesterday, and that's only place you got your news, you're going to think uh, Dr. Fauci again is smarter than everybody in the room. Masks are totally needed. And Rand Paul's a buffoon. And you've got to ask yourself, how do we get our news? I think this is one of the most important things that we have to wrestle with as a culture and as churches. How do we get our news? Because I think some of the polarization of our news sources is even what led to the Capitol riots on January the 6th, that we get into our echo chambers. And so we've talked about that a lot on the show. And I would encourage you to ask yourself that question about where you get your news and never think that your news sources are neutral. So you need to read in a wide spectrum uh, and be a critical thinker and read in community. I just wanted to get that out there today because I saw that yesterday and it just kind of messed with me again. I was like, uh, man, uh, are, like this is a real problem. Well, we're off and running today here on The Common Good. Uh, we are glad that you're with us. Hopefully you have a great Friday. Spend some time with us. We're excited to be together. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. My name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you joining us today. And we are thrilled to be joined by the lead pastor of Catalyst Church in Newport News, Virginia. Uh, his name is Jeff Mingi. Jeff, thanks so much for joining us, man. Brian, thanks so much for having me. It's our pleasure. Hey, before we jump in, we're going to jump into We're going to go a couple different directions with you. Uh, we're going to start with this article that I found just fascinating that you wrote for the Gospel Coalition. But but before we do that, why don't you introduce yourself to our audience, however you'd like. Sure thing. So married to Lauren, we have two boys, 11 and 13 years old. So we're navigating that season of mm -hmm. life. And like you just mentioned, pastoring Catalyst Church here in Newport News, which is in the Hampton Roads, southeast region of Virginia. That's awesome. I, I have a 17-year-old, but then I also have an 11 and a 13-year-old, so I know how that is. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you wrote an article over at the Gospel Coalition that we talked about on the show a couple days ago, uh, but would love to just dive into it more with you. It's called, it's entitled this, The Dangers of Doom Scrolling. And that word doom scrolling is kind of a new word to our lexicon, kind of a new cultural word. So let's start there. Can you define for us what that word doom scrolling even means? Sure. So there is a section on uh, Merriam-Webster's website that watches new words, and mm -hmm. they noted doom scrolling and defined it as this, the tendency to continue to surf or scroll through bad news, even though that news is saddening, disheartening, or depressing. Mm. So that's the definition that they're watching and using. And um, from what I've learned, the word is uh, a couple of years old, okay. but it's just now coming to light. Wow. And why do you think it's so we all we, we get that like we've got phones in our pockets. I spend way too much time on Twitter and Facebook and social media places like that. Uh, so we've got all of this in our hands. What do you think is the draw? <laughs> what does it say about our human condition and talk about us uh, that we are drawn to bad news the way that you just kind of described? 
Mm, well, I, th- I think that's a great question. And I'm right there with you using yep. my phone way too much. And uh, I'm, I'm ashamed of myself many times when I realize how I've neglected the people around me as I've just thumbed through whatever's in front of me. So I think we're drawn to doom scrolling on a couple of fronts. One, as we navigate just the sinfulness of humanity, our mm-hmm. eyes are drawn to evil and they have been since Genesis chapter three. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think in the article, I walked through some of the biblical background of that, but I, I think that's still very much true. And our, our phones have just put a lot more news in front of us. I think another um, aspect of this is something I've heard you say, and that is that the way we consume our news is not neutral. Mm-hmm. The headlines are written in order to gain our attention and get our clicks and keep us scrolling. And the reality is that good news doesn't sell. So uh, we, we are constantly bombarded with these bad headlines that cause us and entice us to click. Um, and so we dive in headfirst to doom scrolling. Yeah, I remember in college taking a media class and, and they famously, you know, they brought up that famous saying, if it bleeds, it leads Like mm, yep. on newscasts. This might be this is, might be an unanswerable question. But have you thought about why we do why even that that's the way that news organizations go, that they've determined if it's bad news, it's going to be better Uh any thoughts as to why that's even the case? Here, I'll put it this way. I would kind of think good news would lead. Like we'd all want to be happy and we'd all right. want to. Why do you think it is that bad news sells so much better? Well, I think part of it is because uh, bad people are drawn to bad news. It makes us feel better <laughs> about ourselves when yeah. we see how bad somebody else is. Um, I also think that it's worth noting in contrast to the bad news headlines that we see in secular culture. I, I agree. I think the church ought to stand out as a place where good news is celebrated mm-hmm. and heralded. Mm-hmm. I think on Sundays in our gatherings and in our meeting gatherings, we ought to celebrate the good news and the evidences of grace and celebrate how God is using each other. And mm-hmm. and the world's just not headed that direction at all. That's right. You ask the kind of $64,000 question for us as Christians. You said uh, in your article, it says Christians should reflect on how their digital habits are helping or hindering their discipleship. What is doom scrolling doing to your soul? So how would you answer the question? What is kind of this doom scrolling? What does it do to our souls? Well, I think as C.S. Lewis points out, we're always becoming something or someone. And I think that doom scrolling fosters that spirit of let me find more bad news, Hmm. whether that's because uh, I want to simply be entertained by somebody else's pain or whether that's because I feel bad about myself and looking at how bad somebody else is, I feel better about my badness uh, by comparison. I I think doom scrolling is having a cumulative effect in in us as followers of Jesus that that we're we're not aware of how mm. God is working we're not seeing and celebrating the evidences of grace uh even throughout the old testament you see them building memorials where they saw God move well we're not doing that we're we're pinning uh articles that are bad news um and so i think the cumulative effect is not good uh which which is why i think we need to think more deeply about this issue 
Yeah, and you you point out in the article one of the things it do, does is it fuels our anger, mm. uh, which is was fascinating to me because if we look around, you know, like we said online, social media, uh, people seem angry right now. Uh, how does bad news kind of you talk about it stacking logs on a campfire? How does just stacking bad news in our life kind of leave us in an, in a state of anger uh, of anger make us angry? Mm. Well, I think that as we stack those logs, we're we're um, we're making our enemies worse mm. and we're exposing it, trying to shine the light on what we think are their worst aspects. Again, part of that is because it makes us feel better about ourselves and our yeah. position. But I think in our polarized culture, uh, this aspect of, of doom scrolling and, and staying angry, um, it's just so easy. It's, yeah. it's so easy to um, uh, make the other enemy even worse. Yeah. And if I can choose this word or click on that link or share that post or share that picture, even if I haven't read the article that I'm sharing, um, as long as it makes the other guy seem bad, share away. Seems yeah. to be the, the, the default posture right now. I suppose it makes us feel better about ourselves, too, if we're not, you know, somebody else has it worse. Uh, I love how you end the article. You say Jesus is better than doom scrolling. So you're a pastor. You know, you want to point people to the good news of the gospel. Uh, How would you flesh that out? Jesus is better than doom scrolling. Well, as as our church members and, and even as myself, as I find myself scrolling, doom scrolling and looking at the bad news, I want to remember that Christ died for my sins in accordance with the scriptures. I want to remember that he was buried and on the third day rose again in accordance with the scriptures. And this is where I'm called to fix my gaze. And so no matter how good doom scrolling makes me feel, and we, we do it because it makes us feel good, Jesus is better. Uh, you know, the gospel is richer and deeper and uh, uh, more effectual in uh, conforming me into the image of Jesus. And so I want to remember that as my eyes are tempted to look to the screen for bad news, I want to be encouraged to look to the Bible for good news. Yeah. Yeah. As we close out this segment, and Jeff's going to stay with us for a second segment. Uh, Jeff, as we close out this segment, what are some practical steps you maybe tell your church or you would tell people out there about how they handle their social media accounts, how they handle their phones? Like what are what are maybe some uh, some some parameters, some fences around so that we don't fall into this where kind of our digital media kind of controls our thought process? That's a great question. I'm, I'm working on a book right now on exercising digital dominion. And, oh, that's awesome. And, yep. So it's five questions I think Christians should ask to take control of their digital devices. And just by way of the, the questions are who's controlling who. So I think we need to ask that question. Mm-hmm. Um, how is this shaping me? Which we've talked a little bit about that uh, in doom scrolling. Uh, does this help me flourish? I think we need to ask the question of human flourishing. And, uh, okay, do my, do my digital habits help me flourish? And then, uh, fourthly, do I know wisdom and folly? And then fifthly, am I being missional? So I think being aware of your digital habits, knowing when to put the phone away and, and, uh, how to put it away. I think one of the most practical things we can do is just turn the phone off and leave it in another room. Yeah. 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 That's, I didn't even know you're writing a book about it. So I'm glad that we asked that question. I'm excited for that book to come out. Again, that other voice is Jeff Mingi. He's pastor of Catalyst Church in Newport News, Virginia. Jeff, glad that you're still with us. Uh, you've written a couple books that I just kind of want to uh, kind of jump around them right now. One of them is I found fascinating. It's called Forgiveness, A Risk Worth Taking. 
a verse-by-verse journey through the book of Philemon. I was telling you off air, recently I preached through the book of Philemon, did it kind of in one Sunday, and it's amazing how much people love that book but don't know about it at all, kind of that little book uh, in the New Testament. Uh, so walk us through that. What, why do you love the book of Philemon? And, and talk to us also about the concept of forgiveness in the book of Philemon. Absolutely. So the book came as a result of a sermon series I did. I didn't do it in one sermon like <laughs> you. I took a couple of Sundays and Good. we walked through uh, We walked through that short letter. And our church was encouraged that as we studied that book to think more deeply about our relationships. And the way that we see each other in conflict is such a critical piece of the Christian life. Mm-hmm. So we walked through that book. And one of the things that I, I loved about the book is this call to forgiveness and this challenge to see one another, not as we are in conflict, but to see one another as we are in Christ. Mm. So when I'm in conflict with another believer, m- my job is not to see them through the lens of this conflict as though there were no other aspect to their personhood. My job yeah. is to see them as they are in Christ and then, the navig- and then to navigate the conflict with them not against them. Yeah. If, if you've never read the book of Philemon, I would highly encourage you. And you can read it in one sitting and then tell people I read an entire book of the Bible today. Right. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. uh, it's just a great story as you kind of dig into the background, the background of it. You also wrote a book in 2016 called Called to Cooperate, a Biblical Survey and Application of Teamwork. I'm, I'm interested in the biblical survey of teamwork, right? We, a lot of leadership books out there about teamwork. Uh, but what did you learn in the Bible doing a biblical survey of teamwork? Well, as I entered into my first full-time ministry, I found myself essentially navigating three different teams. I was the new guy on the pastoral team, which meant my job was to show up and speak when spoken to, Hmm. um, you you know, uh, and do what I was told. When it came to the larger staff team, I had a little bit more of a voice, a little bit more of authority. And then there was the youth team that I was in charge of. I set the agenda. I I determined who was invited to the meeting. I wanted to navigate those teams well. And so I turned to my Bible and said, okay, what does the Bible say about teamwork? And uh, I found beginning to end, the Bible speaks often about the call to cooperation and the importance of teamwork. So Mm -hmm. we journey as far back as eternity past when we see the triune God operating in relationship and in love. So we see that the first act of teamwork was love. And we travel all the way into heaven and we see that uh, throughout John's revelation, there are no, I don't think, any solo songs in heaven. They're Mm. all congregational songs, which I think is a nod to teamwork. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What happens as pastors, but just also just Christ followers when we're like, nope, I'm going at it alone. Like I'm not a team player, right? And we see this unfortunately, with some pastors. Uh, what's, uh, what's the detriment to them and also the detriment to the church? That's a great question. I think sometimes we can run faster by ourselves, but we can never run further by That's ourselves. Yeah. And e- even if we could, we could not bear the image of a triune God while operating as solo Christians. Yeah. When God says you're to bear my image, well, part of that is relating to others. It's Mm. obeying the one another command. So if a pastor says, nope, I'm going to go at it alone. Okay. He can get a lot done, um, but he's not going to bear the image of a triune God. Mm -hmm. And I think he's going to find that the gospel uh, is far bigger uh, than than he can handle by himself. And getting the gospel to his neighborhood is 
a bigger task than than he can handle by himself. Yeah. One more question about this, about teamwork. How, what's your thoughts on teamwork between churches and the value of that and also how to navigate that? What do you think for, for pastors about linking arms with other churches, say, in their area? I think I think that's an important ta- task for uh, pastors to have these days. It, it's uh, church leadership is a difficult place to be these days. Mm-hmm. Any leadership is a difficult place to be these days. But for a pastor to have fellow pastors uh, with whom uh, he can link arms, I think that's important. I also think in these days it's important for pastors to think through. Okay, what does it mean? what are my boundaries for cooperation? Who am I comfortable cooperating yeah. with on which projects and, and which projects do I think? No, I don't think it's wise for me to cooperate with that. RC Sproul had the, um, the concept of studied ambiguity, which was if we remain vague on certain things, it's easy to cooperate with anybody. Hmm. But the more we get clarity on what we mean by these words, the more we realize maybe it's not best for us to cooperate on this particular topic. That's right. That's a, that's a good caution. That's a good uh, a good way to go about it. Uh, all right. We've got a couple more minutes left. And I, like I said before we started, as pastors, I love I'm a pastor, you're a pastor. Uh, this has been a year that none of us were prepared for uh, <laughs> culturally, but also specifically in the church. Uh, wondering what it's like out here in Illinois. Things have moved very slowly. I'm not sure how it's been in Virginia, but uh, wondering what it's been like for you as a pastor and a father over this past year. And just kind of what have you learned about your church and about yourself? Well, well, it's been a roller coaster. Uh, yeah. I think with everybody, ups and downs, you're right. None of us took this class in seminary on how to lead <laughs> through a pandemic. That's right. And so everybody's learning. We're, we're all rookies this season. Uh, the, the, the beauty of it is, uh, for at least for me, our, our family dove into the quarantine and we said, okay, let's embrace this. We played a lot of uh, board games together. Mm-hmm. We watched mm-hmm. the Marvel movie series all the way through. My son and I built a skateboard half pipe in our backyard. Awesome. Um, we just did some things that we never would have done had we not been uh, stuck at home. As a pastor, we pivoted pretty quickly to online services, and, and then we've learned a lot of leadership lessons throughout the journey. Right. I found at the beginning there was a little bit of excitement. Oh, okay, this is new. This is fresh. That quickly faded away. People felt lonely. They felt isolated. They, they, they just felt discouraged. What I have found is we've been regathering now for a few months and uh, regaining some of that momentum is that we have shifted gears and put a, a bigger emphasis or a re-emphasis on the main thing work of evangelism and just encouraging our church. Who are you pursuing for mm-hmm. Jesus? Who, who, who are you pursuing? Who are you going after? And our church has rallied around that mission beautifully. It's That's been great. encouraging to see them say, I'm getting text messages of just I, I just invited my coworker to Easter service and he said yes. Or uh, one guy texted me the other day, other day and said, hey, I just had a spiritual conversation with my son-in-law. and We're going to start reading the Gospel of Mark together. Oh, wow. uh, so neat, neat regaining of momentum and getting back to the main thing. That's awesome. With like the last minute that we have left here, how do you think either your specific church or maybe think global, like the big C church here in America, how do you think we'll be different coming out of the pandemic? Well, my hope for Catalyst, and I, I hope it's true for the global church, is we keep the main thing the main thing. Yeah. So much sideways energy has been spent this season, whether it's in uh, na- navigating secondary or tertiary issues. I want to get back to the main thing work. 
That's great. Thrilled to be joined by Jeff Mingi for two segments here. He's the lead pastor of Catalyst Church in Newport News, author of a book called To Cooperate, a biblical survey and application of teamwork. You can also find his book on forgiveness through the book of Philemon. Uh, go to Amazon. I'm sure you can find him there. Also, the Gospel Coalition article. We'll put it back up at our Facebook page, The Dangers of Doom Scrolling. Let me point you to a website too, catalyst-church.org. That's catalyst-church.org. Jeff, it's great to meet you. This has been a lot of fun. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Brian. Honored to be here. Absolutely. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. My name is Brian Fromm. I'm really glad to have you joining us on this Friday afternoon. Well, I found this article. It's written for pastors. But as we often talk about here, the things written for pastors can be applied to to just about every profession and and just to all Christ followers out there, because that's what we are as pastors. I'm a pastor of a church called Four Corners Community Church in Darien, just south of Downers Grove here outside of the Chicago, outside of Chicago. And uh, the weird thing is that that if you talk to your pastor, I would guess that that they would tell you, I want to just be seen as a regular person. And I don't mean like as better or worse, just Sometimes people take pastors and think that they, they are altogether different. And, and it's not the case. And that's why when I, when I read these things written to pastors, I, I usually kind of feel like this is good for everybody. This is going to be good uh, regardless of if you're a plumber, a teacher, a uh, stay at home mom or dad, a businessman, whatever else it might be. And so this was written by a, a man by the name of Ken Shigematsu. And it's entitled this. It's at the at Christianity Today. And we'll put it up on our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram pages. It says, God meets me in my daily run. What used to feel like a duty has now become my lifeline. And I think this is going to be a glimpse into some of the normal activities, some of the things we've been able to do during the pandemic and, and be able to look at this and go, okay, uh, this is kind of how God has used. I remember Ian used to talk about just his daily walk with his kids, just going for a walk when it was nice out, uh, that kind of thing. So Ken Shigematsu writes, I don't know if it's because I'm of Japanese descent or because I'm a pastor or both, but my life has been largely driven by a sense of duty. For many years, my prayer life also felt dutiful. As I prayed through lists of people and specific requests, I would often find myself checking my watch to see if I'd clocked my time. Rather than talking with God or listening for his voice, I was essentially talking at God. Those times of prayer often felt burdensome and wearying. Next, now we're going to talk a little bit more about prayer because I think a lot of us kind of feel this way. He goes on to write, over the years, my prayer habits have gradually changed. I've come to see prayer as a chance to enjoy God's company. Huh, think about that. Now my time with the Lord is my favorite part of the day, a time I approach with anticipation. During the past year of COVID-19, like many pastors, I've woken up some mornings feeling melancholy at times with a twinge of depression. The weight of pastoral responsibility has pressed more heavily on my shoulders. I've worried about a young mother in our congregation who was on a ventilator fighting for her life. I've worried about church members who've lost their job. I've worried about the financial trajectory of our church during the prolonged pandemic. In this difficult season of isolation, discouraging news and weighty ministry concerns, my time with the Lord feels like a lifeline. Rather than a duty or obligation, daily I'm discovering that prayer opens an ideal space to experience gratitude and joy in God's presence. 
Each morning, I roll out of bed and leash our dog. And while it's still dark, we go for a leisurely run through our neighborhood. While running, I mentally scan the past 24 hours and, and think about the good gifts that God has given to us. I know that as I savor something good in my mind, my brain releases dopamine and serotonin, elevating my mood. But as I trace these gifts to their ultimate source, I also feel more gratitude and joy in God. I'm learning that prayer is the best context to receive and savor God's love. He goes on to tell a fascinating story from that movie, Won't You Be My Neighbor, the documentary about Fred Rogers, Mr. Rogers in the scene. He's, uh, Mr. Rogers is addressing a, uh, a graduating class. He's giving a university commencement speech, and he asks them to close their eyes and take a minute and imagine someone uh, who loved you into loving. And he tells his listeners, you don't ever have to do anything sensational for people to love you. Ken goes on to write, when I arrive home, I light a candle and sit in silence for a while, simply enjoying God's presence. Thomas Keating emphasized that the goal of silent prayer is not perfect attention. If we are distracted 10,000 times, he taught, this represents 10,000 opportunities to return to the Lord. What is more important than attention is intention. With this in mind, I close my prayer with a few phrases of intention. Help me to love you well. Help me to love my wife and our son well and others that I meet today. For pastors, this long pandemic season, he says, has brought many unique pressures and difficulties. My morning prayer rhythm doesn't always make me feel on top of the world, but I almost always feel lighter and freer than I did before, filled with more of God's love to offer others around me. I have more energy to make phone calls to see how they're fair to people in our church to see how they're faring in this crisis. Not long ago, someone told me with all the responsibility you carry, I'm surprised you're not more agitated. I really feel you're here in the room. See, time in prayer focused on joy in God's presence rather than duty has helped me to be more present to the people in my life and ministry. He ends this way. During my prayer times, I still occasionally look at my watch, but not out of a desire for time to move more quickly. Now it is with the hope that time will move more slowly as I savor the joy evoking presence of God in prayer. God imparts his love to me, enabling me to love and care for those I encounter throughout the day. That's Ken Shigematsu, senior pastor of 10th Church in Vancouver, British Columbia. And I just love that, that, that article because a, it reminds us of the role that prayer plays in our lives. It is our being in God's presence. It is being filled up so that then I can love other people. It's reminding ourselves of the good things that God has given us, the way that God, the ways that God has loved us. And it fills us up. It sets our, our mind. It, it, it affects our attitude. And we're able then to go about our day. And it also reminds me that prayer doesn't need to be uh, I'm going to kneel at this one spot in the dark. No, it could be while you're on a run. Some of my best prayer times have always been when it's nice out, just going for walks around parks here where, by where I live. I find that I pray better as I'm outside and walking and moving. So how are you going to grow in prayer? Uh, prayer is is not just a non-negotiable and an act of obedience, but it is a lifeline for us as believers to connect with our Heavenly Father, and it, it, it connects us to Him, and therefore also gives us the ability, changes us as we go about our days. I love this article, God Meets Me in My Daily Run. 
Well, coming up next, the last hour as we close out the week, uh, at the Gospel Coalition, they ask this question, should online church continue after the pandemic? We're going to talk online church here as things start to get back to normal on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Coming up this hour, should the online church continue after the pandemic? And then we're going to hear an article from Russell Moore about real Christian courage. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. It's Friday. Hopefully you had yourself a good day so far today. Looking forward to the weekend. Uh, I'm leaving tonight on vacation with my family. Have I mentioned that? Have I mentioned how excited that I am to get to the sun and just have some fun, uh, just dedicated family time with my wife and three kids? Uh, how that's going to affect the show in the next couple of days, there'll be just some best of shows on Monday and Tuesday, bringing back some of the interviews we've done uh, over the past couple of weeks. There really have been some great guests over these past couple of weeks, and then I'll be back here on Wednesday. Well, uh, online church, something that as pastors, as just churchgoers, something that I'm sure all of us have given a lot of thought to. And at the Gospel Coalition, Jay Kim writes this article, should online church continue after the pandemic? Now, if you know the Gospel Coalition, you could probably guess the way it's going to go. And I do want to, I do want to talk about kind of his answer, but it's a big question for those of us who are parts of churches, who lead churches. When we come out of this pandemic, what does the church look like? The, the online experience, so my church uses Facebook and YouTube, but people are using all sorts of different things, Zoom or just uh, something on their website, whatever else it might be. The ability to be online over the course of this pandemic has been a lifesaver. It's allowed us to connect with people who have not, uh, who are not willing to come back and be in the physical gathering yet. And that's okay. There are people who are, you know, they're ready for this pandemic to be done, but there's other people who are just super cautious right now. And especially at the beginning of this, but all the way even to now, the ability, uh, to, uh, to preach and teach and sing and connect online virtually. I mean, just picture if this pandemic had hit in the mid eighties, right? What would we have done as churches? What would we have done as schools? Like, I know Zoom has gotten really annoying, but let's just think about the blessing it has been over the past year. What, what, I think about the church that I grew up going to, where I grew up in New Jersey, uh, a smaller church, a medium sized church, whatever. Uh, but what would we have been able to do if we kind of couldn't gather in our normal way for an entire year, but did not have this online ability to connect with each other? I can't imagine how churches would have survived. What would we have done in schools if having Zoom was not an option? Because, again, I know we're all tired of Zoom and, and we wish that it wasn't how we had to do things, but it, it certainly has at least allowed things to continue. But now as we begin to see the good, uh, you know, the, the light at the end of the tunnel, as we've been talking about is as we begin to kind of come out of this, if you will, what's, uh, what's the answer for the church going forward and what role does online continue to play? Let me read a little bit of what this article says. It says, uh, 
It says, next week, I'm going to be out of town. Hey, bud, me too. It says, it's going to be my first time away. Uh, while I'm grateful for the modicum of normalcy a trip like this brings, the unfamiliarity of distance will be jarring. What I do know is that I'll miss uh, our, our kids terribly as he's away from his wife and kids. This was true before COVID-19. I'm curious how much more true this will be now. As usual, we'll schedule FaceTimes. But the most critical component of the gift of being away is the gift of longing. As we interact on our digital devices, it will deepen our desire for an analog reunion. He goes on to say, so it is with the church. This weekend, he says, my church will gather in person for the first time in a year. He's out in California. Uh, While I've been grateful for online services, the greatest gift of this difficult season has been a deep and visceral longing for embodied presence. That's well put. We're not alone. Churches all over the world are beginning to regather, and they have this yearning to be together. So what does this mean for the future of online services? As the analog church begins its steady comeback, what does it mean for digital church? The worshiping life of the church, he writes, is and always has been a participatory endeavor. In the Bible, the Hebrew and Greek words for worship reflect whole-bodied engagement. He's going to go on to say that that's what worship is. It is body. It is presence. He says, we were living the tension between participation, participation and passivity long before March 2020. But at least we did so primarily together in person, shoulder to shoulder. Now we've comfortably settled in as isolated audiences consuming worship content at the click of our individual buttons. As we navigate the future of digital church and online services, he writes, we must carefully consider the downsides of the medium. The post-pandemic future may very well be a hybrid, at least for some time. For our church, he writes, This is primarily because many will not be ready to return in person in the near future. As churches regather and engage again in efforts to inspire participation among our congregation, church leaders would be wise to approach online uh, expressions with the same level of urgency. So he's going to go on to talk about what it means to be online right now versus not. And I think he's right. I think uh, not only will there be a season, I think for good. Uh, churches are now, if they weren't doing so beforehand, are going to be in-person and online opportunities. I think I'm of the belief that the vast majority of our church members and our church participants want to get back to in-person. I don't believe the people who are like, oh, you know, uh, there are people who like to uh, just uh, be at home in their pajamas. Uh, But I do think that, that we need to stay online because there's going to be people who get sick, whether it be with COVID-19 or the flu or the cold, their kid gets sick. You're going to have those older congregants for whom it is hard to get out. And I think something we've learned in this is that if we weren't online before, it is a great way to join people together. But he goes on to write about uh, joy together. He says, as, strong in- as a strong introvert, introvert, I thought I was mentally and emotionally prepared For an extended period of isolation, there was even a part of me that sort of looked forward to imposed solitude. But he said, I did not realize how much my joy had been and continues to be inextricably tied to Christian community. David Brooks writes this, joy tends to involve some transcendence of self. It's when the skin barrier between you and some other person or entity fades away and you feel fused together. That's so important. He says real joy arises when we unshackle ourselves from self-centric tendencies, which digital technologies tend to amplify, 
and immerse ourselves in a larger story. So think about what he's saying here. He's saying that as we gather together as churches, as communities, it's for our joy. It's not just for the other person we're interacting. It's for our joy. He ends the article this way, this being Jay Kim. He says, we've lost so much. We've lost much of this past year in our isolation. Online technology has held us together tenuously, but it's not enough. There is grieving, rejoicing, feasting, and everything in between to be done together, embodied, and fully present as one. May our longing lead us back home to God and to one another. I think this is well put. I think it gets at the tension of needing to stay online, needing to recognize that people aren't really ready to come back. Not everybody's ready to come back, but also uh, raising the bar again for the importance of the uh, physical embodied gathering. And that this, this holding that higher. I don't think that we as churches should go, hey, be online or in person when things are back to normal. I think we say, no, be in person. And if you have to be online, it's a great way rather than nothing. But we want you with us. We want to be together. I know for me, one of the things I miss most about church on Sunday morning is just the handshakes and the hugs at the back door. And as part of the church community, our church went kind of old school. We, We kind of do like potluck dinners and stuff. And I think that we really miss that. So we'd love to know what you think. Put this article up on our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Common Good Talk. Well, coming up next, uh, we're going to talk about an article from For the Church that says humility and greatness are the same thing. That's coming up next here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you with us on this Friday afternoon. Hopefully you're looking forward to a great week. Baseball season's almost here. We're in the midst of, if you're a sports fan, uh, you Bears fans, you're getting to enjoy the Andy Dalton era. That's said, again, tongue-in-cheek. But it's just a fun time of year. Easter's coming. Those of us who are parts of churches or who lead churches, I'll often tell our church here that Easter is like the Super Bowl for pastors. Uh, And it's kind of coinciding with people slowly coming back to church. Uh, And so with that in mind, uh, have some positivity. There's so much negativity around us due to the pandemic due to our politics, the divisiveness. Uh, I want to continue banging the drum for us as Christ followers to not have fake positivity, but to have joy, to have positivity, to look at what is good around us. Hopefully we're coming out of this pandemic. Easter's coming. The spring is coming. Things are budding. Baseball's coming. Life is good, even though it's also hard. And most of all, we can be positive. We can have, say, even if everything around me is crumbling, I still have uh, the love of my Savior. I still have uh, the knowledge that in Christ, I'm a child of God. I'm loved more than I could ever imagine that Jesus came so that I may have life. I may have joy. I may have peace. I may have forgiveness And because of that, even if the storms are raging or life is crumbling around us, we can hold on. We can take that perspective and go, okay, for me to live as Christ, to die is gain. Like there's more to this world than I know. And even though life is really hard, I can hold on to that perspective uh, and persevere and not just persevere, but persevere with hope, persevere with joy. Such an important kind of a posture 
for us to take? Well, if you've been around this show for any amount of time, you know that one of our favorite pastors to talk about and to discuss is a pastor who's down in Nashville, Tennessee. His name is Scott Sauls. Scott Sauls is the pastor of, uh, I think it's called Christ Redeemer, Christ Presbyterian, sorry, Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee. Scott also writes regularly at scottsalls.com. He, uh, he, he blogs there. He is on Twitter uh, a lot and writes a lot of good stuff there. Also written many great books, A Gentle Answer or Jesus Outside the Lines are two of them. So uh, I don't know how he has all the time for it, but, but Scott Sauls writes and speaks great things. And so I tend to really resonate a lot with the things Scott Sauls talks about. And so I was on this website called For the Church, and wouldn't you know it, uh, there is a blog post, an article written by Scott Sauls. So it's called this, Humility and Greatness Are the Same Thing. Just think about that headline for a second. Humility and greatness are the same thing. Let me get into what Scott Sauls has to tell us. He says, Arthur Miller's famous play, Death of a Salesman, features a pitiful character named uh, Willie Loman. His story is a cautionary tale of a life that is hollow and sad because the most important thing in life for him is to be well-liked and well-respected by others. According to Willie, appearing successful matters more than being successful. Appearing kind, generous, and virtuous matters more than being kind, generous, and virtuous. And appearing to have one's act together matters more than having one's act together. Well, rather than living authentically, Willie hides his true self behind a self-protective mask. To be sure, this career salesman is selling a product, but the product isn't a a vacation or a house or a set of of knives. It's a false image of himself. He is the quintessential poser, a shell of a man with no real friends, no real intimacy, no real joy, no real purpose. He's a tragic prototype of what Henry David Thoreau alluded to when he said that, quote, the mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. The worst part of Willie's hollow poser way of life is the only legacy he knows of to pass down to his two sons. And so Saul's is going to go on to talk about how this mirrors the Pharisees in the New Testament. One of the most uh, damning things that Jesus says to the Pharisees is you are whitewashed tombs. Beautiful on the outside, full of death on the inside. And then Jesus says, woe to you. Worry about what is on the inside. Be men of of uh, not just worried about what other people see. And that's what Saul's is getting at, that we all long for affirmation. But when we long for the affirmation of others, it's tricky because its origin comes from a good place. Like we want approval. But just Jesus said to the Pharisees, do not live for the approval of man, that that is a, a fool's way of living and that it is unsustainable. I've used the imagery here at our church of of the clown, that the clown, you've got that painted on smile and that painted on joy, but often it is not real. Saul's goes on to say the image of God in us is the reason we desire more healthy forms of affirmation and praise, a pat on the back for a job well done, uh, an affectionate I love you from a spouse or a loved one, or hearing the words I'm so proud of you from your mom or dad. It's true of all of us, whether you're aware of it or not. 
Each of us live lives with a deep craving for positive life-giving verdicts to overrule the negative verdicts pronounced over us from the outside or from within. When parents shame us, when peers exclude or tease us, when colleagues or bosses or spouses express disappointment at us, when our social media posts don't receive the likes we had hoped for, when we are confronted with failure and with not measuring up, our impulse is to run for cover, to shield ourselves from condemnation of shame and to put up a defense. And so we live thirsty for benediction, for a good word spoken over us to reverse the negative verdicts from the outside. But those negative verdicts shouted us from the inside also, don't they? I once saw an interview with Mariah Carey, he says, in which the interview asked her why she, a very successful and celebrated musician, still struggled with feelings of emptiness and insecurity. Her answer was that she could hear a thousand praises and one criticism, and the criticism would overrule all the praises. Isn't that so true? Like, Just think about that. I think a lot of us live that way, but we may not live in a world where we get a thousand praises. But it's the criticism that we hear. Saul's later goes on to say, when we lean on the praise of others, whether in a grumpy religious way or in an emotionally needy way, when we feel that we need applause, we're trying to fill an infinite space with finite goods. Oh, that's good. We're trying to fill an infinite space with finite goods. He says, he goes on to to say, put it another way, the praise of others while originating with the image of God, can also be distorted into an idol that can never satisfy our emptiness. We would be better off pursuing what Henry Nouwen calls, quote, downward mobility. Uh, Downward mobility. Nouwen's rationale for his radical downward move was as follows. He says, Scripture reveals that real and total freedom is only found through downward mobility. The divine way is indeed the downward way. Jesus moved from power to powerlessness, from greatness to smallness, from success to failure, from strength to weakness, from glory to ignominy. Easy for me to say ignominy. The whole life of Jesus of Nazareth resisted upward mobility. Yeah, Saul's ends this way. How do people like Henry Nouwen become so free? How do they find strength to renounce emotional neediness and the craving to be well-liked and respected by others and to instead pour their lives out in love for others, even those who could give nothing in return? I dare say that this ability to become self-forgetful, this ability to divert their eyes away from uh, toward God and away Uh, to divert their eyes away from toward God and neighbor was fueled and sustained by the daily voice of their heavenly father and ours, whose love through Jesus is always unfailing, always secure, always triumphant over negative verdicts, saying to them, keep going, kid. The way up is the way down, Saul says. When we walk the path of downward mobility, we are lifted up by the well done of our heavenly father. And what could be better than that? Gosh, I love the words of Scott Sauls. That is so good at For the Church. Humility and greatness uh, are the same thing. Well, coming up next, Russell Moore in Christianity Today uh, writes this, courage to stand. Real Christian courage looks like Elijah at his most pathetic. We're going to discuss that next year on The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. I've enjoyed flying solo this week. I've never done five shows in a row by myself. Lots of great guests 
Well, Russell Moore, someone we've never had on the show, but man, would I love to get Russell Moore on the show sometime. Uh, he wrote this at Christianity Today. It's actually an excerpt from a book he has. It says, real Christian courage looks like Elijah at his most pathetic. My caution to those who, quote, stand for truth by calling down fire from heaven upon its enemies. So Russell Moore, um, he has been in the midst of the, quote, unquote, fire for the last four or five years. Uh, Russell Moore is someone that I have great respect for. Uh, he tends to be very conservative in not just his theology, but his politics. But he also uh, tends to speak up uh, particularly against President Trump uh, and others. And uh, he, for that, has taken a lot of arrows in the last four or five years. And so uh, Russell Moore within the Southern Baptist Convention has taken a ton of arrows as well. So here he's going to talk about real Christian courage. He said, at the moments in life when I'm feeling especially scared, I've noticed that Elijah is the last person I want to see. So he's going to give us some background of Elijah. He says, during one dark period, without any conscious decision, I remember altering my daily Bible reading of the Old Testament ever so slightly. I'd been reading through First and Second Samuel and then into First and Second Kings through the life of Solomon when I suddenly veered to the Psalms. As I thought about it, I became convinced I was avoiding the middle section of First and Second Kings because I knew who was there, a prophet called Elijah. I wanted to avoid him the same way a laid off person wants to avoid the employee of the month neighbor for the, or the way an obese person wants to avoid his marathon running brother-in-law. The comparison only highlights one's inadequacies, whether real or perceived. When we think of Elijah, we think of steely determination, the willingness to defy gods and kings and scorn and consequences. If you asked me as a child in Sunday school to draw a picture of Elijah, I would have drawn the scene on Mount Carmel where he calls down fire from heaven. In that moment, Elijah is everything I want to be. Remember that story, friends? Remember, uh, he stands up. Uh, to the prophets of Baal, to the many prophets of Baal, and he calls down fire from heaven. And, and, and God sends fire, God sends rain, God sends more fire. And then Elijah just, uh, he, he slaughters the prophets of Baal. It's like the Old Testament. It's the most Old Testament-y story that there is. It's, it's a very, uh, heroic story. It has the feel of, of William Wallace in Braveheart, right? Mel Gibson yelling freedom and, and kind of freeing his people. So, uh, it says, uh, and so in the moments when courage is lacking, I just want to do an end run around, uh, Elijah, but that's harder than it may appear. Try to avoid Elijah in moving through the Bible and one will find, much as King Ahab and Queen Jezebel did, that he has the annoying habit of showing up persistently often when it was least expected. That's somewhat surprising because at least in terms of space devoted to him, Elijah is not a major biblical figure. As a matter of fact, he is a kind of mayfly in the sunset of the scriptures. One moment we see him, the next he is gone in a literal blaze of glory. But Elijah's absence is felt over the rest of the Bible, even as his mantle and his spirit move on through the line of prophets. Indeed, the very last words of the Old Testament are about Elijah, as God told the prophet Malachi, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord. And then there's silence, silence for 400 years. But when the story resumes, Elijah is everywhere in hints and illusion. We talk about John the Baptist and Jesus pointing to Elijah and Elisha. The Elijah narrative is certainly about courage, but not in the way 
Russell Moore says that I'd always assume that's because I, like many of us, often misunderstood both the definition of courage and the meaning of Elijah. Much of what I admired about Elijah is not actually the point of the story. He says, I aspired to the sort of fearlessness that could respond back to Ahab, that the king, not the prophet, was the troubler of Israel. The same sort of sass and swagger uh, seems present when Elijah threatens drought, holding back rain by his word. He doesn't just defeat them. He humiliates the prophet's of Baal. Elijah needs no such theatrics. He simply calls for fire and fire falls. Uh, When it comes to bold and unflinching courage, Mount Carmel is not the hinge point of the Elijah story, but a prelude to something else. See, right after the moment of triumph, Jezebel, the murderous wife of Ahab, vows to see Elijah dead by the next day. The Bible states, then he was afraid and he arose and ran for his life. And the story only goes downward from there as Elijah treks into the wilderness to flee from this threat. Far from the flannel graph Spartacus, I'd always expected. No, he's afraid. He's pathetic. He's weak to the point of collapse. He seems depressed, lonely, exhausted, and depressed to the point of at best whining and at worst self-harm. And even when the crisis is resolved, God speaks of him, not of his own bright future, but of what God will do through others, rendering Elijah seemingly irrelevant. More often when I've had heard this account taught or preached, the focus has been on Elijah facing some sort of burnout, and we hear stuff from Elijah. But what Elijah was facing, he says, in the wilderness was no mere burnout. It seems to me, but something more comprehensive of a breakdown. In the wilderness, God was doing for Elijah what Elijah had done on the mountain, removing the bales, this time from the prophet's own heart. See, the way of courage, Moore is going to say, as defined by the gospel, is not the pagan virtue of steeliness and fearlessness, much less our ambient culture's picture of winning and displaying or strength and courage. No, if we misunderstand the true climax point of the Elijah story, we will follow him somewhere other than where we ultimately was led to the crucified glory of Jesus Christ. We will conclude mistakenly that Elijah was the picture of courage we think we need. The ideal celebrated in everything from ancient Greek legends to modern action films. Elijah is not a picture of courage through triumph, but a courage through crucifixion. His life was a dramatic enactment ahead of time of the cross, just as your life is a dramatic enactment after the fact of that same cross. That's why he's the model we need. And he's going to go on to write a bunch more. But here's the point. Your courage will not be found in triumphant Mount Carmel moments. Right when you scatter enemies, real and imagine it's going to be forged instead when you cannot stand on your own at all, when you collapse in the wild places, maybe even begging out for death. See, Elijah thought he was walking to Mount Sinai, but he was really walking toward Mount Calvary. And so are you. Only the crucifiable self can find the courage to stand. And we're, see, again, we, we make Elijah this hero and he did heroic things, but Elijah was breaking down. He collapsed and he, he needed to hold on to God. And friends, the same as us, true for us, real courage. That's what it looks like. The crucifiable self, as uh, Russell Moore says, finds the courage to stand, not because we're walking towards Mount Sinai, but because we're walking to Calvary, because we realize who Jesus is.
and who we are. Such a good word from Russell Moore. Well, coming up next, we're going to end the show uh, by a word, uh, a little video clip, audio clip from Jeff Vanderstelt talking about gospel fluency for our fear. We're going to talk about fear next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm, about to close out another week of Friday afternoon. Hopefully, you've got big plans. Uh, Looking forward to a good weekend. The weather is supposed to be nice here in the Chicagoland area. Hopefully, you get some chance to be outside, a little bit of rest, relaxation, some sunshine, some fresh air, and we look forward to having you with us again next week. I want to end this week uh, with some inspiration, with some hope and some uh, from a pastor. His name is Jeff Vanderstelt. Uh, I believe he's out in the Seattle area and uh, writes a lot, especially around this concept of gospel fluency. Um, And and so Jeff spoke here. Here's what I want to do. I want to play what he had to say. It's about two minutes. Uh, And then let's talk about it and let's reflect upon it. Here's some words from Jeff Vanderstelt. 2020 brought so much chaos and loss. And as a pastor, I imagine you're wondering, like, how does the gospel speak to this? How do I not only receive it, uh, but how do I speak it to others, other leaders, other pastors? And when we talk about gospel fluency, we know that the gospel speaks to absolutely every situation we'll ever face. And specifically, I think it really speaks to what many of us as pastors have gone through this last year. You know, the good news of the story of God is that in the beginning, everything starts with chaos and darkness, and there really is nothing in a sense. And God brings to nothing something. He speaks into darkness light. He takes the chaos and he brings order. And then even a few chapters in, we see Adam and Eve sin and ruin everything. And there's chaos again, and there's darkness, and there's loss, and there's a lot of fear. And I, I, when I think about what we've gone through this last year, I'm no different than you. I imagine you felt what I felt, which is completely out of control, so afraid at so many levels about what was going to happen to the church, what was going to happen to how we lead, what's going to happen to pastoral ministry in general. I mean, there's just so many reasons to experience fear. And the good news about the way God made you is he made you to feel fear when you're out of control. He made you to feel fear when the situation is bigger than you can handle. He made you to feel fear when you realize you need help, you need protection, you need some kind of shelter. And the good news of the gospel is that Jesus came to speak to our fears and bring help when we're out of control bring protection when we're in danger, bring shelter when there's things coming at us that we need protection from. So here's why I wanted to play this to begin with is because many of us out there can totally um, uh, relate to what Jeff says there about fear, that we're feeling that fear. And sometimes as churches, as Christians, we don't allow ourselves to admit that we feel fear. But that fear is a very natural thing. And Jeff even talked about in there the, the, the God-given beauty of fear and what it produces in our lives. And, and, and I think it's really important in the midst of a pandemic in which so many people have lost so many things, health, maybe even loved ones, jobs, 
uh, money, uh, relationships, normalcy, whatever else it might be in a season where we have lost so much and you don't know what's coming. We have to we have to name it and acknowledge that some of us are afraid. Like we're we are fearful. I don't know where along the line we got into these habits of Christians of trying to like act like fear is a some sort of non-Christian thing. Like there's something wrong with the concept of fear. Like, no, fear is a very natural thing. And so if you're feeling fearful today, I want you to just acknowledge it because what you don't want to do is to add shame, to add guilt on top of your fear. Like, oh, I'm terrified of the present. I'm fearful of the future. And I feel guilty for feeling that way. No. No. But then the Bible does tell us what we can do with our fear. What did, what did God tell, uh, tell Joshua when Joshua was, uh, be, he was called to take over from Moses. Can you imagine that? And to lead the Israelites into the promised land. Like, like if you were called to do that, that would be a fear inducing calling. But over and over again, God tells him, don't be afraid. Fear not. Why? Because I'm with you. Because I'm with you. As we feel fear, it needs to push us back into the reality that our God is present, that he has not abandoned us, that this pandemic is not a sign that God left the building, that the divisiveness around us is not a sign that God has lost control, but that God says, I will be with you always. Fear not. Why? Not fear not because it's sinful. Fear not because I am with you. That promise of God's presence is still uh it's still it's still uh, valid. It's still true. God says, I will be with you always. And Jeff tells us that the gospel, the answer to our fears is the gospel, his idea of gospel fluency, that as we know the good news of the gospel, that as we internalize the gospel, that as we are brought back to the gospel, that in our fear, we are reminded that God is present. God is active and God has done something that there is coming a day when there will be no more pandemics. You realize that our eternity, there will be no more pandemics. There will not be divisiveness. There will not be the brokenness that comes through sin. And we can, we can hold on hope for that. That yes, we are ravaged in the already, not yet that, that we deal with the effects of sin and brokenness, but that God says, that's not how it's always going to be. That that Paul writes in First Corinthians that uh, where o death is your victory, where o death is your sting, and what we're going to celebrate on Easter here in the coming weeks is uh, that that uh, Jesus has won the victory over the grave. That in Christ we have victory. That sin is no longer ultimate. Death is no longer ultimate. Judgment is no longer ultimate, but Jesus is ultimate. That that victory has been won and has always been won. And so as we struggle in the already not yet here of like knowing that Jesus has won the victory, but still having to feel the effects of sin and brokenness in this world, we can hold on to what is to come. I think that's what Vanderstelt is getting at here. Acknowledging our fears, bringing it to God, understanding under the umbrella of the gospel that we can have hope and we can hold on. If you're fearful, if you're anxious, right? Do not be anxious about anything, but that's not where the verse ends. It says, but in everything 
by prayer and petition, present your request to God and the peace of God will tra- that transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Where does that peace come from? It doesn't come from the removal of our problems, of our fear, of our anxiety. It comes from the knowledge and the understanding and the, uh, the truth of who God is. That, that he is present and active and he is ultimate over our fears. I think we need to hear that as we go into our weekend. I'm thankful for the words there of Jeff Vanderstelt uh, about the gospel and how it speaks to our fears, our legitimate fears. As we close this week, we've been closing every day out of the book of Jude, our doxology. Uh, I just love to kind of put a bow on the show this way. So let's do that. We end the book of Jude this way. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. We're glad that you joined us today on The Common Good. We hope that you have a great weekend. Join us again on Monday from 4 until 6. Until then, again, have a great weekend. My name is Brian Fromm, and you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life.